Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Call us on air. Get your opera voice heard. What's your hot take on what we're talking about? Again, 847-866-9687. All right, tonight, the first living singer to be inducted into the OBS Hall of Fame is a beloved American soprano? Find out who receives this inimitable honor in 20 minutes or so. But first, season ticket subscriptions to your local opera house have likely been the lifeblood of its existence, but is the importance of subscribers coming to an end? Our team scrambles for an aisle seat in our Chalk Talk segment. Plus at 9.40 p.m., it's the two-minute drill. Everything you need to know from the past week in opera land and our hot takes on those stories got a great show for you tonight. It's great to be back on WNUR. It's great to be back with uh, Tobias Wright. George, it's so good to be here. I'm so happy to see you. Dude, it's been two weeks. Matt just looked at me and thought I was you. It's true. Uh, I, Matt, I lost track of who's who. That would be Matt Cummings, of course. Great to have you here, Matt. It's good to be back. Anybody else in studio number two? Oh, it's me. It's Weston. <laughs> Weston's here. Wow. Crowd favorite West, uh, crowd oh. fan favorite Weston. Der Weston Williams. Oh. Yeah. So Weston, the fans from Germany are here. What sport would you like to talk about, Weston? I don't know what sports are, so um, okay, I'm going to say Calvin Ball. Tobias That's- Wright. <laughs> My Silence. joke did not, did me, not land. Talk to me, George. That's okay. What, what's on your mind, dude? NBA Finals. The NBA Finals Cavs, are going. Right Cavs now. The Cavs are in a 2-0 hole, but yeah. the greatest of all time, the GOAT, is going to make sure that the Cavs don't get swept. The GOAT is, by the way, not Michael Jordan. It's LeBron James. Somebody can call in and argue with me about that, and I will happily talk to them. Okay, it's so true. You- he will happily talk about it because I've been learning so much about basketball, frankly. I'm an amazing student, I have to say. Who's been teaching you about basketball? From Toby, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Toby, is he an amazing student? I mean, Matt's one of the smartest people I've ever met. So uh, On the script so no. here, it says lost cause. Uh, okay, <laughs> on the script. So, so you're, you're, you're saying that the Cavs are going to lose the series but totally. not get swept. Exactly. Yeah. I think actually, I think there's a chance Cleveland can win the next two games. It'll be kind of fun. Stanley Cup is also happening. Caps have a 2-1 lead over Vegas. Nobody wants to see Vegas win. Why? 
No, that, as, as a Las Penguins Vegas. fan, I don't want to that see that narrative win. of like, oh yeah, expansion team first year of an expansion. Wouldn't team it be cool if an expansion team won and no, then they just folded? No, no, no. You pay your dues. You pay <laughs> you're your saying, dues. No, like George, you don't pay your dues. If you're the best, you're the best. Just like LeBron James. LeBron James. French Open is happening. Oliver is sad. Serena is out. Is that Roger why Oliver Federer isn't here isn't tonight? He's, he's he's a mourning about Serena. Probably. Yeah. Actually, oh, well. our heart goes out to him. Thoughts and prayers. It's a rough time. Federer, he's, Federer he's paid his dues. Tease and tease. <laughs> you know. All right, let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That's the show, WNUR 89.3 FM, 847-866-9687 is our number in studio. All right, in 1977, Danny Newman, the longtime press agent at Lyric Opera of Chicago, Newman. famously asked audiences to, quote, subscribe now. That was also the title of his best-selling book, and it was the mantra for Opera House marketing staffs for a generation. Is that generation finally over? Fred Plotkin, who writes the Operavore blog on WQXR.org, has outlined some changes he wants to see at the Metropolitan Opera and their subscription setup. Weston, let's start with the big picture. How do subscriptions work at an opera house? Well, that's a good question. It's all sorts of uh, uh, marketing and uh, financial alchemy that uh, that kind of holds uh, the arts kind of at bay. Uh, <laughs> what you do is, you know, you you uh, instead of buying a single ticket to a, to a performance, you can purchase a subscription to the whole season. Uh, sometimes you have different subscription packages where you just choose certain ones from, you know, a, a season um, uh, in particular packages, and then you get set seats usually for for those also sometimes set dates depending on the subscription. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Set dates. Uh, so uh, usually there's some benefits getting subscription, like uh, it's it's technically less amount of money per ticket. You know things like this, and uh, you can exchange usually, which yeah, is a that's great usually, thing. Yeah, that's pretty nice something, too. Yeah. The one problem is is that uh, even though this has been kind of the uh, system for probably the past hundred years or more, it it, it does not seem to be. As effective as it once was. Uh, however, this um, uh, this uh, article on uh, the Operavore blog from Fred Plotkin, uh, who is very famously a pro subscription uh, person, um, it kind of he kind of tackles this topic and tries to find um, ways to make the subscription model kind of work again. Uh, he cites um, the the fact that in the 2015-16 season, the Metropolitan Opera sold an average of two. 2,869 seats per performance. Um, and uh, however, uh, the the numbers have been declining. Uh, and even though uh, other opera houses in Europe are smaller, they are more consistently selling more s- tickets proportionally to the uh, actual amount of seats. Uh, the Met, for example, is 3,786 3, seats. So they're missing out on nearly 1,000 seats per performance, which is not great. And it's been a trend over the last couple seasons that yeah. their their attendance has not been where they want it. And, and their it, subscription numbers are getting lower and lower. Right. It's not and that's not just, just the men. Not just the men. Yeah, exactly. It's it's very much a problem that is kind of across the board, particularly you know, in the United that's States. Interesting in this particular article too is that he mentions the H G broadcast kind of cutting into that. Uh I I kind of disagree to an extent. I mean, maybe the Met directly, but I don't think that the Met broadcast are cutting into subscription sales at the Lyric Opera. I, I, I have the same right. kind of bump on that, is and that I know that that's something that people talk about in arts journalism. And I looked it up actually, and 
as of the 2013-2014 season, Peter Gelb has acknowledged that they probably did cut into Met attendance. Mm. Oh, okay. That there were that there were performances in New York, and but but I and I have the same kind of idea of oh, is that really just conventional wisdom or is it the whole thing? And I don't know if there's a way to really factually. There's a very easy fix to it, though. I've said this before on the show. You take it straight from sports, it's called a blackout, right? So if yeah. the game in your market, the football game is in your market, isn't sold out, hmm. then it's not on TV. Mm-hmm. They should have done the same thing. They should have said, look, this per- live performance in Manhattan is not sold out. Therefore, you cannot go see it on the HD broadcast. Now, yes, the logistics of that, those are complicated. I don't have an answer for that part. But in principle, I think there is a solution to the Met. Well, HD but at, this, at the same time, though, uh, Met tickets are going to run you triple digits easy, whereas you can not walk. Necessarily. I mean, uh, depending on where you're going, for a lot of people, the cost of going to the movie theater is going to be a lot more tenable than going to the Met. No, but I mean, even that, if that, you're in New York. But there are usually cheaper ways to get Met tickets as well. And that's actually part of the problem with subscriptions. Is Matt if... likes to live on the black market. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, there are rush tickets, but you can also buy, you know, nosebleed seats, which is what I've done the two times I've gone to the Met. I bought them in well, advance. All but... of that is great, but the the I think the real strength of the live and HD Met performances is that you are providing accessibility for people who would not otherwise be going to but the to opera, t- who don't know these ways to get in. To tie it back into price, though, and what you're saying, Matt, with a subscription. So, Matt, I, well, Weston, have you ever been a subscriber to any? I have. Okay. I have been a subscriber to the Lyric Opera, Opera Birmingham, um, and the uh, Atlanta Opera. Nice. Yeah. And you, three. Matt, just to, I did. I did it for Lyric for a year in between undergrad and grad, because the way I saw it, honestly, was that I had enough disposable income to afford it and not keep stealing student tickets from them so <laughs> i owed it to my art form to actually give back and pay the real value of the tickets that i was getting Way and what did you get the, the moral high ground matt that well i'm good. very much better than you so <laughs> it's opera box score and wnur 89.3 fm subscription sales at opera houses are they as dead as the dodo matt you say that conventional wisdom is that subscriptions make it easier to program riskier things because they get all bundled together but Let's let me ask you take a closer look at that statement. Is that really true? Yeah, I definitely think that that was what people who were pro subscription especially when you're talking about lyric opera mm-hmm. that that they talk about being able to plan their adventurous operas because they had a subscription base that would buy the whole season and so that they didn't have to worry about a view from the bridge or whatever other their new opera of the year because they knew that they were going to have they knew they were going to have enough subscribers buying it that they didn't have to worry about it but i my experience in going to operas is that a lot of times the things that you wouldn't expect to be the big ticket sells like you know early music or new music there are a lot of people who are very who are really excited about that type of music mm-hmm. and kind of come mm-hmm. out of the woodwork i was going to say are those subscribers or People well, that's emerging. what I. That's what I think that the development departments should really try to figure out is: Are these the same people who are the, at the at these opera houses? Are these the same people who are going to see your Garden Variety, Verdi, or Mozart revival, or are do you know? Do you have to work a little harder to get them to come see your show? Well, I think that's the thing. I mean, uh, especially in New York at the Met. I mean, the the Met has always been a conservative house, and they they tend to uh, program the same kinds of things over and over again. Uh, after uh, 9-11, um, 
of course, tourism to New York City dropped considerably, but the Met kind of kept its same kind of uh, programming going for the next few years. And what they found was that their subscriptions dropped precipitously, except on those weird new operas and strange offbeat ones. Because what they realized was that the tourists were coming and seeing your your Madama Butterflies, your <laughs> all of the Puccini operas. Um, and you buy a single ticket for that the, if you're a tourist. But the right. New Yorkers, the ones who lived there, they've seen that a million times. And they were getting excited about the other stuff. And I think that is what the general trend is going to be, not just in New York, but across the country. You want to see new stuff, stuff that feels more relevant, especially to new new audiences. I think a lot of this discussion about subscriptions is propping up this antiquated form of, of ticket taking at the expense of really artistically confronting why more people are not going to opera. I think I think there's a much better better model in uh, in places like uh, well in, in like like Vienna for example where you've got you know you, you've got your Staatsoper for all your war horses but then you have um, uh, the Volksoper for your more uh, Viennese operettas yeah, and everything's and, and done then, in German and, and then and you have like the Theater an der Wien which is your weird your, your stuff. weirder stuff I think they have artistic visions that you can really sell and then you can sell multiple operas with a vision. When I don't think the Met has that kind of vision. The Met's already kind of tinkering around with the formula, too, in that a couple of years ago they started uh, upcharging their most in-demand tickets, especially mm. if it had a star that they that they thought was going to be particularly enticing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the two performances of Carmen a couple of years ago that were supposed to have Jonas Kaufman in them, <laughs> who didn't even show up for it, but they were priced more expensive than, they were higher prices than the rest of the run of Carmen. But that's like baseball. Like when the Yankees or the Red Sox come into town. Most um, tickets are higher. But now. it was a pretty big deal when the play, Met did you know? that. Like they... Yeah. I would say though that that there were lots of stories about how it was a big change. But are you you're not talking about the subscription tickets? You're talking about the single ticket prices, correct? Well, I think that it makes it makes fiddling around with the subscriptions more complicated when you're in when you've already introduced all these other variables to try to figure out what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things that uh, Mr. Plotkin comments a bunch on. of different. Uh, one of the things he said, simplify subscription and ticket pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, right, he said, I'll just read, I'm going to quote from the article. Right now, there uh, are some 200 pricing options for subscriptions, including identifying each opera as an A, B, C, or D. Get rid of the system, which in effect places a value judgment in each cast and opera. Uh, no one, I, don't, I disagree with this actually a lot. No one has the time to study and compare all of these options. And I, that's what I, like that's what made me think of the dynamic prices. They're already doing that with their I, single tickets. Well, yes, you're already doing it with your single tickets. But the idea of a subscription should be that it, I think in general, and I just so everyone knows, worked in the ticketing office. I sold subscriptions for the Lyric Opera of Chicago. And I think the biggest deal was you were getting a discounted price to an extent. Um, the more operas that you bought in your subscription. Mm -hmm. What you were getting a discount for is you were giving your money up front. You were saying, these are the dates I would like to be there, and I have agreed to what you've presented as part of this package. Here's my money. So then they have the cash in hand, and that's the whole idea. Um, That's why subscriptions are a great deal and have helped for generations. And I think now we look at all these different options, and it talks about pricing and ranking operas and saying people don't have... Uh, the time to compare casts and dates. Well, I think what it really comes down to is the economy and who's going to these operas now. And so it becomes less of, I don't know, it's hard to say that in March of 2019 on Thursday at 7.30, I'm going to be available to go see Trovatore. I don't know. It also makes it like you're trying to buy a a cell phone plan. 
when you're untangling all of those pricing options, it's very hard to actually know what's the best plan so for you. So we are all in a similar age range, <laughs> right? Uh, mid to late 20s, early okay, 30s. Okay, okay, one of these things is not like the other. Yeah, I get it. sorry, George. He's like <laughs> 75 over there. But what we're all saying is that we're afraid of commitment to this type of thing. <laughs> And more or less, that's you what know. He said, Probably, right? yeah. "That's why I'm single, George." <laughs> but, Some, but it, somebody out there loves me. At least I got that me. on you, man. Thirteen years married. It, it really is true. I mean, you have the gig economy, which doesn't pay much for people in our age, and your schedule is away. I mean, I I got so many calls from Lyric Opera to renew my subscription for next season, which I would love to do, but I literally have no idea what my schedule is is going to even be uh, going to be in even two months mm-hmm. much less whatever five months in now, advance now would you mm-hmm. renew if you knew that there would be flexibility without a penalty a- well there is flexibility without a penalty with the lyric which is one of the nice things about it um however you even then i i the to the degree to which i do not know my schedule is cannot truly, be overstated. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I am currently working uh, six jobs, depending on how you count it, and that's that's a literal Jesus. number. That's an actual number. This has been in the the a young person in the arts, folks. and it's not even an outrageous number of jobs. Yeah, for there, people to there be are people who work more hours than I do. There, I mean, and and making less money often. I mean, it's 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 truly, uh, it, especially in these. I'm the kind of people you should be getting in because I mean, uh, with all due respect to you guys, you're all. We're professionals in already. The, you guys yeah. are all professionals in the field. You you sing. You you direct. I I don't do either of those things. I'm I'm the kind of young person who just really really likes opera. Um, I occasionally sing in churches, but that's the extent of my performing. I'm the person they should be going after, and I I do not have so what the could capability. change? What could change to make you buy a subscription? Is the only answer yourself? I don't think anything. Do you I know mean, what I mean? Like, is is the subscription issue then moving forward? Well, well, this is the thing. I think the subscription issue is something that needs to be brushed uh, brushed away in favor of getting to what not what gets people to buy the subscriptions, but what people what gets people to actually come to the opera at all. Period. <laughs> because if you have good enough programming, if enough people know about it, if the prices are reasonable. If you can work out some other system, you don't need to be thinking about it in terms of of subscriptions. That I think is what makes people come to operas, not having this set thing five months in advance. Weston's I, exactly right. I mean, yeah, subscriptions have never worked for me. Why? Because I don't want to go see live art because it's quote my night to go. Mm-hmm. I want to go mm-hmm. because it's exciting and it's going to change the way I look at the world. These are the artistic choices that Weston is talking about that need to be driving ticket sales, not some obligation to go see something which may or may not move you. And so we are we are essentially talking about the wrong issue here when we're talking about do subscriptions work or not because it's it's not really about this this sense of obligation. It's about the work itself. The article is uh, on our website, operaboxscore.com. Let us know what you're thinking uh, on Twitter at Opera Box Score. Again, the number in the studio, 847-866-WNUR. After the break, Matt Cummings takes us inside the OBS Hall of Fame. That's next, only on Opera Box Score and WNUR FM Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic, yet humble, salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. Thank you, Norm. <laughs> Can I just reiterate how great that, that intro is? Uh, did anybody not pee in their pants just now? <laughs> All three of us were standing there with our hands up in the air just, God I have, bless. I have tears streaming. <laughs> That'd be Tobias Wright, Matt Ba-ba. Cummings, and Weston Williams in Studio 2. George Cedarquist here in Studio 1. Opera box score in your ear holes. 89.3 FM WNUR, Edmonston, Chicago. Thanks for hanging out with us after a week off. Uh, I'm not going to wish you a, quote, happy Memorial Day like our inane That's president. Enough. We don't need to go for uh, Yeah, we're right? not, not going to do that. We're going we're gonna to throw the, a long pass to Matt Cummings over there. Very long. In studio he caught it. Two. He got it. Hey. I've been such a good student. You caught the ball, Matt. Did so, you get picked last, by the way? Oh, on, like, every kick? time. Every time. <laughs> Matt, if you were a basketball player, I think you'd be... A three. I know what that means now. Uh, but And I want to talk about my number one, which is Leontine Price. Oh, yes! Nice. Uh, it, was, I, it was hard to pick someone that was, you know, the right balance of someone who was totally prolific and, ever, and you could talk about for 20 minutes and still not even scratch the surface and not go too obvious. And I sent an email to Oliver because I was in a crisis, and I said, can I talk about Leontine Price? Is that too mainstream? And he said, for God's sakes, please talk about <laughs> Leontine Price yes. because she deserves it. She is one of the first operatic names that I ever knew, even before I knew anything about opera, and one of the earliest singers that I ever listened to. Oliver was like, talk about Leontine Price. <laughs> Newsflash, Bear has defecated in a forest. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing about Leontine Price for me, though, is that she, like, she's such a legend. She's so famous. She's so important that sometimes I take for granted how great of a singer she is Mm -hmm. and when you listen to it you're just i'm bowled over again by how good she is and she's not even just a singer she's an institution how did she come to opera she grew up actually in uh segregated mississippi she was born Mm -hmm. in 1927 in laurel mississippi she saw marian anderson perform as a child Mm -hmm. which she has said was one of her uh, that was one of her influences, but she didn't become a performer until after she'd already got worked on a degree in education and ended up getting a full ride to Juilliard to study opera. Oh, and nice. Actually, funny thing, a couple influence, early influences that happened at Juilliard, she went to go see her first, or not her first opera, she went to go see what she calls her most influential opera experience, which was 
Zalame. Hey, I talked about that on my, on my already in the OBS Hall of Fame. <laughs> and she started a, a longtime collaboration with the composer Samuel Barber. And All so right. I've got my clip number one roll that I want to roll, which is a, a selection from the Cleopatra's death scene from uh, Samuel Barber's Antony and Cleopatra. I'm going to admit that that is not a barber opera that's done that often. It is no. very underrated. It was Well, it was kind of a flop because the production wasn't very good and most of the opera people said were not great. But that singing and her, yeah. and the music for Cleopatra, I think, is just spectacular. So it's kind of one of those things where when I listen to that, and I don't know, you know, we have a lot of singers I know that listen to the show and, and we're singers here and we listen to opera quite a bit. But if you're not intimately familiar with the voice, one of the the things about Leontine Price that sticks out the top and her, her chest and the middle, they're all there all the time. And so she goes from straight to the middle there, right into that first high note. And I'll admit, I've never even heard this clip before. And it's stunning because the balance and the power and the warmth, and there's no disconnect anywhere. And that's what makes her such a powerful presence. They're not necessarily as unified as you'd get from like a Joan Sutherland voice where everything is smooth from top to bottom. But all three, like all parts of her voice are so human and so raw. And they ha- it just has a really exciting gleam to it when I listen to it. I It gives me goosebumps just thinking about Leontine Price's voice sometimes. Well, it's less of a... It's hard to describe that, too. And I think you'll probably talk about this later. It's not so much that she's producing a sound as she's just singing. She, she Yeah, exactly. And it's a voice that often gets described with opposite word, like words that, that contradict each other. It's soulful, but it's pure. It's dark and dusky and smoky, but it's silvery and white hot. And it's ferocious, but it's also tender. And most of these I pulled he from things. He just described a delightful I... red blend that I'm going to have with my steak this evening. <laughs> most of those I pulled from things that people have written about her in, in critical reviews. Like Those are all adjectives that get assigned to the same voice. Uh, and what I always hear when I listen to her is the warmth of her voice, both how warm vocally it is and you can kind of feel like it's a warm bath that you're getting into but also her human warmth and her dignity and i think that that comes through especially well in clip number two (laughs) nice (laughs) segue (laughs) which is uh a clip from leonora's act four aria in trovatore and this is from a live performance hold on hold on but before we do that i have a question yeah what act act four okay yeah
So that to me is pretty bold singing. There are some daring choices that she takes there in her phrasing and how much she sells it, particularly in how she's not afraid to take any time at, at those fra- at, in those long, long phrases. She takes a lot of time at the end. But at she, the end, that would be even difficult to conduct. Yeah. I mean, you're basically putting the orchestra on standstill, but she, <laughs> and yet, you, so you can put an orchestra on standstill, but you can never put an audience on standstill. And if, you're, and if you are, it means you have to have reached out with your voice and grabbed them by the collar and said, listen to exactly what I'm saying, mm-hmm. which is what she did there at the end of that phrase. And you, there are some singers like uh, like Elizabeth Schwarzkopf who will get described as an instrumental singer. And Leontine mm. Price for me is like the opposite of that. She is always singing. She's a vocal singer. What is an instrumental singer? It's, uh, <laughs> an, 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 an instrumental Whoa. singer is more someone... Can I try that again? <laughs> uh, Matthew, what is an instrumental singer? It's someone that doesn't necessarily use the same uh, range of dynamics and may uh, or tone qualities the way the way that she is it's like oppressively accurate yes Mm. that she is her tone doesn't always stay the same throughout a phrase or even throughout a note but it always feels organic and that really comes through in this next clip segue which is uh, a selection of a spiritual uh swing low sweet chariot and it was she recorded this in about the same year as she recorded, the, as she did that performance of Trovatore just now. Okay. She also recorded the background vocals I think, <laughs> on that one. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Matt Cummings walking us through the OBS Hall of Fame, Volume 2, with Leontine Price. Yeah, so that arrangement is maybe a little dated. But, you know, sometimes you listen to opera singers singing spirituals, and you're just like, oh, my God, this is so mannered. This is so fussy. I can't. I can't listen to this. That's not what I heard. She's just singing. It's so organic. It's it's natural. I the the I read a little bit of the line notes where she's like, "These are songs that I sang in my childhood, and they're just great." And the voice just pours out of her. Mm-hmm. And the thing, so something we haven't really mentioned yet about Leontine Price is that she is an African American soprano, mm-hmm. and she came of age singing in the late '50s, early '60s. So that was an important time, <laughs> just a little bit, to be an African American soprano. And she was not the first African American singer at the Metropolitan Opera, and she wasn't even the first one to do a leading role. But she was the first star, and yeah. she was their first, you know, African American diva. The Antony and Cleopatra clip that we heard from earlier—that was the opening night of Lincoln Center. They picked her specifically to sing in a new opera, a new role, at a new opera house. I wish the Met still had that kind of edgy program. Yeah, <laughs> what I um, yeah, loved about real. that last chip, uh, last uh, clip was that. She's, it felt to me, you know, when we say it's organic and, and all of that, it felt to me like she was singing because she loved to sing it. Yeah. And I can really appreciate a singer who has immense talent 
um, and status. And at that point, she did. But you still sing just because you love to sing, not because you have golden handcuffs and are contracted for the next five years or whatever. And if you want to record a spiritual, um, and what was interesting about that, she never left her chest. She yeah. just, she was just there. She was at peace. And I think that comes across, and that's why it's so effective to hear that. And I think it's funny that we get to hear "Swing Low, Sweet Chariot," um, with that ease and with that grace and and peace. And then you get to hear "Trovatore." Well, she was rather subdued in the in the Trovatore clip, but I don't know what's coming up next. It, it it's gonna be a little clip from Madame Butterfly, which what? I think which I think uh, really is shows she agitated. She is. This is right before she commits suicide. <laughs> Uh, and I want, and even though it's dramatic and agitated. Wait, hold on, Matt. Spoiler alert. Okay. okay. A little bit For all a... the people who have never <laughs> right. seen Madam Butterfly, so even you got to slow down. Even though it's <laughs> my god, it's dramatic and it's agitated. I don't feel like it. I'm just gonna steamroll over this. But it no, I don't ever feel like it is over the top or like it's you know a caricature of a person. She's still human here. Take us to church, Leontine. <laughs> you know, it's not, it, it, and it does, it's not technically perfect, but to me, it's pretty perfect. It's just otherworldly beautiful. It's so emotionally locked in to what the scene is about, too. I, I feel like with a lot of, uh, with a lot of these sort of uh, singers from her era, you, there's, there's sometimes a sort of a disconnect between what's vocally going on and what. It feels like in the scene, and she's got it. You know what I? So you can hear the vocal intensity. I would love to be on stage with her. I think I think that that was from a studio recording. But the the difference between her studio recordings and her live recordings is not much. You know, some singers you you imagine her walking out and looking at you just in this fit of rage. Too, too. I follow her. I mean, like I'd be like, uh, Haley Antine. And this is a Excuse singer, me, you Miss know, Butterfly. I will get out of your way here. This is a singer who, you know, made a name for herself doing these larger than life tra- tragedy heroines. And I think what made her really stand out is how human they all are. And she was able, between that and her voice, she was able to become an institution. She's one of the last, I, I realized this while I was reading about her, she's one of the last remaining, like, institutions of the Metropolitan Opera, like, important people who have worked at the Metropolitan Opera mm. and are synonymous with it, who are before the era of James Levine. 
Oh, that's mm. important. Oh boy. <laughs> she, I mean, they definitely worked together, but she was there back in the Rudolph Bing era. That was it's a it was a different world oh, yeah. when she what took the stage. What year was that butterfly recording from? I believe it was from 1960. 60. Oh wow. So she's still incredibly young. Yeah. Are and any of these later recordings? So the next one that I was going to play, he set me up for it. He set you right. This up. is from her farewell performance in opera, which I, was in. I, I threw you an alley you. Yeah, he got it. You got it. I, I know what that is because you taught me about <laughs> basketball. Uh, but this is from her farewell performance to the Met in Aida, which I want to say was in 1985, definitely mid-80s. But she's almost 60 years old here, and she's still singing incredibly well. This is uh, a little bit of the climactic phrases of O Patria Mia from Aida. That's a high C for those of you keeping score out there. <laughs> That's a, quite a retirement piece. Yeah. <laughs> and there's just this warm, dignified humanity that comes through every time she sings. And she's she's a national treasure, is, is really all I have to say. And I'm so glad that we get the chance to talk about her while she's still alive. Can I share uh, something about her and Aida? This, yeah, this is a good story. Okay, this is, I'm, and I'm not going to claim to have knowledge. I literally read this on Wikipedia, but I thought it was awesome. In the fall of 1981... She had a late career triumph when she stepped in for soprano Margaret Price as Aida in San Francisco, a role she'd not sung no since night. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a role she'd not sung since nineteen seventy six. The San Francisco Chronicle columnist Herbert Kane reported reported that she'd insisted on being paid one dollar more than the tenor <laughs> Luciano Pavarotti. <laughs> this would have made her, for the moment, the highest paid opera singer in the world. <laughs> the Opera House denied that these were the terms of her contract, but I'm going to try. I hope that that's true. It's just better I than the love truth. I want it to be true in so many ways. In my heart, it's true. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have, I'm going to send it over to Leontine to take us out. This is this last clip that I picked out is from 2001 right after the terrorist attacks mm. uh, and it's her performing for the first time in public in quite a while she was in her 70s and this is the little bit of the end of god bless america
I mean, look, Leontine Price, she was doing Renee Fleming at the Super Bowl before Renee Fleming was doing Renee Fleming at the Super Bowl. No joke, Toby has literal actual goosebumps right now. Everywhere. Yeah. And here's, can I share why? If every singer that said they were an opera singer sang with that much conviction or an ounce of the conviction that 74-year-old Leontine Price sang that God Bless America with we would have a better world, we would have a better artistic world, and we would be a whole lot better off. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more for me to say. Thanks for everything, Leontine. (laughs) Thank you, Matt Cummings. Carmen returns to Broadway, but it's not the one by Bizet. That's next on America's talk radio show about opera. Keep it locked on WNUR FM Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. The Dallas Symphony Orchestra announced it's chosen a successor to Jaap van Sweden. That would be Fabio Luisi, the Italian conductor who won acclaim for his recent stint as principal conductor of the Metropolitan Opera. Mr. Luisi, 59, said in an interview that his plans in Dallas include conducting an opera each year, starting with Strauss's Zalame. Focusing on the bread-and-butter romantic repertoire and commissioning 20 new works over the course of a decade, at least half, from female composers. Carmen Jones, the 1943 adaptation of Bizet's Carmen, began performances at Classic Stage Company this month. It's directed by artistic director John Doyle. Uh, Since the 1940s, the racial politics surrounding Carmen Jones have been fraught. This is the first production in New York since the 1940s. Composer David Langson established himself as a master of powerful, large-scale public music. He's back at it again. The Mile Long Opera, a biography of 7 o'clock, that's the title, will have its premiere this fall. It's written for a thousand singers who will perform along the High Line in Manhattan. Tau Pupua, he played football at Weber State University, later with the Cleveland Browns. He then broke his foot, and his voice guided him to an unusual second act. Quote, it was a rainy day. I looked up to the heavens, and I said, what's my calling? And this small voice came in and said to me, move forward, move to New York, go sing. He's now a tenor. Another internationally acclaimed tenor, this one from New Orleans, is pairing circus acrobatics with opera 
Brian Himmel leads Opus Opera, which has teamed up with Fly Circus Space, a circus training center, to create vocal and visual duets, trios, and ensembles with different circus performances for each aria sung. Over to the DL, Kristen Chenoweth has withdrawn from the previously announced Bernstein 100 celebration with Gustavo Dudamel at the Hollywood Bowl. She'll be replaced by Sutton Foster. And on this day, June 4th, happy birthday to Italian mezzo-soprano Cecilia Bartoli. She's 52 That's your two-minute drill. This is America's talk radio show about opera with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. And it's on WNUR 89.3 FM, number in the studio 847-866-WNUR. On Twitter, at Opera Box Score, our website, OperaBoxScore.com. You can take a look at all the articles that we are talking about this week. We got some photos up there. No opera gossip. We try and steer clear of that. <laughs> There's enough of <laughs> that we, out there. Do, do we really help when we? Well, probably we don't. We that. don't help the art I mean, form progress forward. And <laughs> occasionally, we will Leontine delve into never. that opera she clickbait. She would never. That is correct. Yeah, we're not opera clickbait. No. <laughs> no. Taupupua, crazy name, crazy guy. For a number of different reasons. <laughs> no, but I like this story, actually, because you want to talk about... If you read the story on the CNN... It's from CNN, and if you read CNN, that's cool. Um, <laughs> but um, to grow up in a family that was not financially uh, flourishing, um, and he realized from a young age that he had to provide for himself if he was going to go to college, and so he had to find a way to do that. Football was his answer, and he went to Weber State in Utah, um, and then made his way to the NFL, which, just so we're really clear about something, making it in a professional sport is not like, oh, he was pretty good, he made it there. No. <laughs> you have to be the best of the best. There are less than 1,500 players in the NFL, and when you think about how many football players are on a roster on a high school team, there are 100, and then you think that there are, what, 36,000 high schools? So there you go. Like, to be one of the best 1,200 or so, that's incredible. Um, I like this story though because I played football. I played sports, and you played football. Yeah, man. So what position did you play? I was a wide receiver. Of course you were, man. Yeah. Except he's a tenor. Did Did you wear like the that, the cutoff jersey to expose your abs? No, we had nice ones. Oh. <laughs> like, and also I never had abs. Oh. <laughs> I was like tragically. What, what color me- were your uniforms? Purple and gold. Yeah, right. Go on. Bulldogs. Now I was so I was a, I was an athlete, and I've always viewed singing as a very athletic event. And my undergraduate voice teacher really uh, honed in on that with me, and he knew that I was an athlete, played basketball, did track, and he knew that these were ways that he could relate to me. And so to see a football player, at, a professional football player, you have to have a tremendous amount of dedication to that, and I think that actually translates really well. I think being an athlete really translates Absolutely. to being a musician because the nuance of being musician and especially of an opera singer to know your languages to know your translations to know uh dynamics and then to be able to have the freedom to express those things with your voice that takes a lot of work but to become a professional athlete you already have that uh within you that drive and i also thought that his strategy for how to you know keep keep getting places in the world in the music in the music world was really interesting he decided he was going to get into the thick of it and just watch and see how much he learns and so many people and it wasn't even just it wasn't just and this is why i think it's awesome this is why watching film is really important he didn't just 
watch opera because I'm sure that he was attending as much as he could when he moved to New York City. He was literally observing the opera singers, the singers themselves outside yeah. of the opera house. What did they eat? How did they drink? Mm. How did they carry mm. themselves? And I think that's phenomenal. And also, we listened to a recording of it. Uh, he was singing Vestila Juba, wasn't it, that we yeah. heard first? Um, it's dope. Yeah, it's quite great. He's got, great. Yeah. <laughs> He's got quite a voice. <laughs> that's the official I was review. Wait, I was waiting to hear it and be like, oh, here we go. But no, it's... it's no, quite what a friend he's, of mine was in a show with him and said it was kind of... It was awe-inspiring, just like how big everything... You know, his physical presence and his vocal presence is just <laughs> very imposing. His whole approach is this sports mentality, which just, it it works so well, as Toby said, right? So he's auditioning for Juilliard, and in this article on CNN, in his head, it says, quote, I was thinking, it is game day. Game day, baby. Game I mean, day. that just, that motivation well, is I, phenomenal. <laughs> dude, I... I yeah. Anytime that we hear about an athlete finding success in music, I really do think that those are, they do go hand in hand. And there are so many singers who are like athletes, but it's a waste of time. And maybe so. Maybe it doesn't benefit you long term to go out for track when you're in high school. However, learning to function within a team, learning to prepare mm-hmm. every single day, regardless, because you're going to go to practice and you're not going to want to. And there are days that I'm sure you're going to wake up and practice your craft as a musician, and you're you don't want to. But then you allow yourself the time to get into it and find your zone, and you will succeed. And that's why I think these kinds of stories, especially when you're good and you've taken the time to do it, are worthwhile. Matt Cummings, did you ever think you would hear about Fabio Luisi and Carmen Jones? Those are two things that <laughs> I that that I expected to kind of be in my, in my past. I have to say, okay. Fabio Luisi got got a little burnt in New York, and Carmen Jones uh, is I mostly know from the movie with Dorothy Dandridge. Is this uh, like a like a known element? I'd never heard of it before, but I thought it was kind of fascinating. Or am I just out yeah? Of it's loop? an adaptation of Carmen from the. I mean, it's definitely it's the Hammer Hammerstein, right? Yeah, it, Oscar Correct. Hammerstein wrote English lyrics, and it's definitely the product of earlier generations. Uh, in what do terms you say? Of, I, I mean, it's why we can say it. I don't the even. Contra- know, I don't, what is the controversy? I don't I even know what the. I, I don't know if I could put my finger on well, what it is. Here's here's the thing. So it was developed by Oscar Hammerstein. I meant like what actually because yeah, I'm yeah, unfamiliar. No, it was de- the piece was developed by Oscar Hammerstein, and it came at a time when neither opera nor African American theater were really mainstream, and and it took this story of the, of I mean one of opera's greatest female characters, mm-hmm. transferred it to a, a World War II factory and basically provided an opportunity for an all-black cast again in the 1940s and this is the first production in new york since the 1940s i mean that is a that is a fraught birthing it is, of this piece it is very interesting I, I, I imagine there are some portions that have not aged i'm well. sure watching it again just knowing that it's talking about a talking about african-american culture from the 40s and you know it's hollywood so a lot of the people making it were not african-american oscar it Hammerstein was written, certainly wasn't written for blacks by not not black people. I, i'm sure there are parts of it that have not aged well yeah. however um in the uh in the article um that talks about it uh it it, it does mention the um uh the lead singer uh, Sawara Joy Ross. Uh, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, well, it's Anika Noni this... Rose who plays Carmen. Yeah. Oh, that, okay. They, that it's they do they don't mention her in the article, but her but her picture's down at the bottom. Well, uh, this other this other performer who's going to be in this pr- uh, production. Um, uh, she uh, 
the director, uh, John Doyle, uh, told uh, told her, I don't want you to be sassy. Uh, and she was taken aback because she, uh, she as a black performer, even now in the 21st century, uh, has often been told to be, quote, sassy. Uh, and she said that it's really refreshing, um, uh, quote, now I get to play a multifaceted individual, not just a stereotype. Mm. Uh, and that's still a problem that African-American performers face uh, every day. Uh, not just in the opera world or in the musical world, but <laughs> anywhere. Uh, and I think I think there's also some e- effort to be made. I should say um, by the director um, to cut down the Carmen Jones to its most basic components and create something that is relevant. That's kind of John Doyle's trademark. He, right. He's known for the 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 couple big Sondheim revivals where all the actors play their own instruments Sweeney Todd the Sweeney Todd company. and there was a company also Which so I, I've seen both of them and they're and they're is phenomenal that the one with Raul, that's yeah Raul Esparza I mean here's here's the thing is you Speranza. have you have John Doyle right who is old white <laughs> he is old and a white a man Scottish George you're right there <laughs> well <I'm> Irish <laughs> no go away <laughs> And, but look, the reason he's br- he's brilliant for many reasons, this man, but again, in this article in the New York Times, he says to the cast, he says, look, there are culturally things I don't know, so I'm open to whatever you all are bringing. And he puts himself in a position of low status and low authority, which is unusual for a director. Usually mm-hmm. that's not where the director lives in the room because he knows the type of material he's dealing with and he knows how fraught this is and how much help he needs from this all-black cast. What an absolute genius move and what a genius choice on his part. I'd be really interested to see, uh, well, I don't know if I'll be able to <laughs> go up to New York and see it, but I'd, I'd love to at some point, uh, if there's a, a video or something, see how it all turns out. I'd be really fascinated. Weston, what's your take on the circus opera story? I, well, I think there's a Pagliacci joke in this story somewhere. somewhere. I, I can't quite find it, um, but I do... <laughs> I do really love, uh, I, I mean, you know, uh, circus, uh, the circus, you know, is all about, you know, spectacle, ar- acrobatics, um, all sorts of uh, stuff that is very comparable to, you know, an operatic singer doing the, uh, I, I do have to say, I'm, a, I, I, the, the, the plan, there, like, for, uh, for example, there's going to be, you know, some aerials going on while he, while uh, uh, Nessun Dorma is sung, and I'm like, oh, is it? Like, when aren't there though? Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Um, it does seem a little bit. I, I'm always a little bit leery of uh, of things that kind of take arias out of context like this. However, this l- does look like a lot of fun. And I think that's kind of the intention, uh, to create something that's just a fun time where the visuals and the vocals can really complement each other in a way that might not be familiar to new audiences and even audiences who've been going to opera or, I imagine, the circus uh, for years. And for yeah. Toby's sake, you get to see good-looking men and women in leotards. Mostly the men. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly the leotards. I... <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'm going to just hold my tongue. <laughs> no, and I, I, I also think it's really interesting when opera, you know, buys into the these other kind of performance arts that you wouldn't the necessarily associate it with. I like what you said, Weston. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Why can't we just sometimes be fun? And they've got a really natural synergy, I got to say. Yeah. Business word, like buzzword right there. But, you know, mm. Jenny Lind went on tour with Barnum & Bailey. It's already been done. Like... The history is just repeating itself. It's just like how Jesus Christ Superstar has extended techniques. 
but mm. but but it all it all comes back to I think that we in opera have a bit of a marketing problem in that it like it is still shown as fancy people in fur coats and diamonds, and that's really not the reality of what this art form can do. I and, rarely wear my fur coat. I know opera. I wear my diamonds everywhere but the opera. <laughs> <laughs> These are why subscriptions are dying. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, I wish I, I would love to see some video footage. There's there's a couple of photos on the internet, but they're not fantastic. Opus hey, opera. hey, what yeah. is wh- what do out. a thousand yeah. singers look like for the David Lang piece? I hope they can fit in a mile. Well, I know it looks oh, like easy. more than a hundred. Well, singers. the High Line for, there's five hundred twenty-five thousand six hundred miles or feet in five hundred twenty-five thousand six hundred miles. <laughs> Bias, right, you're a disgrace. <laughs> for, for, <laughs> we're not, we're not even going to talk about this. Story. But I've, I've actually, I've sung a good amount of David Lang's music, and he's the drink. Com- he's the composer of this mile-long opera, and it's really, it's, it's unique stuff. You know, it's really direct. It's, re- it can be really powerful. I think it's definitely worth uh, something worth checking. How out. long is it? Five hundred twenty-five. <laughs> good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. It's like the second time Toby's peed in his pants. <laughs> Dude, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was trying ridiculous. to make a stupid rent joke and pretend like I didn't know how <laughs> my, how long a mile was. And I just blew it. It's time for good call, bad call. I Oliver have a says, master's degree from Northwestern. I'm not stupid. <laughs> Don't forget to check out Opera Theater of St. Louis's production of An American Soldier. It's an opera about the life and death of U.S. Army Private Danny Chen. Featuring a friend of Opera Box Score, tenor Andrew Stenson in the title role. I will be seeing that show in a couple weeks. That's awesome. Over at the Opera American Conference. And I think we're going to talk about it on next week's show. We have a real great lineup for next week. Uh, who else has got a good call? I've got a good call. call. All right, take it away. Part of my preparation for my segment tonight was watching The Opera House on PBS, which is available on oh. PBS.org for streaming this week. And you can learn more about our own resident Opera Box Score Hall of Famer, Leontine Price. <laughs> Oh, nice. And yes. the building of Lincoln Center. Ton, Toby, you guys got I, I got, I got one. I don't know if it's a good it. call or not. I haven't seen it, uh, but Laurentea at Haymarket Opera has one more night on the 5th. That's tomorrow. Uh, and that's Haymarket Opera Company right here in Chicago. Closing their show on a Tuesday, huh? Yeah, it's kind of an odd choice, odd. but yeah, who knows? Okay, great. Hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com B-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com Our theme song Vodka Inferno is written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score and of course you can leave a review when you subscribe and listen to our podcast version on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you celebrate finally getting rid of Roseanne Barr off of TV for good. We are back on Monday, June 11 at 9 p.m. Central. More interviews, opera news, hot takes. we got a great show coming up about diversity and opera. Please join us for that. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.